You're listening to Ben and Bikes with your host, Ben Lockett. This podcast is about bikes, but more about the people who ride them and their stories, and less about frame size, shock technology, or even the Tour de France. This is Ben and Bikes, where every bike tells a story. The Ben and Bikes podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ is an insurance agency that helps health-conscious people like cyclists get lower rates on their life insurance. Go to healthiq.com forward slash BAB to support this show and learn how your active lifestyle choices can reduce your life insurance premiums. When most people think of a multi-day bike tour, they might consider doing it in places like the Napa Valley, Croatia, or maybe even the French Alps. But not today's guest. Martin Eberlin decided to ride 1,600 miles from the city of Stanley, North Dakota, where the Dakota Access Pipeline begins, through to its end in Patoka, Illinois. This controversial pipeline transports 470,000 barrels of crude oil a day across four states. The end result of his ride is a book called Our Land and Soil, with the S being in brackets. The book is not only a graphic depiction of the impact the pipeline has had on the people and countryside, but also an observation of the culture of America's Midwest. The pipeline has been highly controversial regarding its impact on the environment. A number of Native Americans in Iowa and the Dakotas have opposed the pipeline under the assertion that the pipeline would threaten sacred burial grounds, as well as the quality of water in the area. Conservation groups worry about safety and the impacts on air, water, wildlife and farming because of the risk of pipeline disruption. A protest at the pipeline site in North Dakota near the Standing Rock Indian Reservation drew international attention. There have been five spills from the pipeline in the last six months. I read about Martin's epic journey on the BBC's website and there is a link to this article on the Ben and Bikes website, benandbikes.com. Martin Eberlin is a documentary photographer and photojournalist based in London. His main focus of work looks at environmental issues, conservation, and studies of rural and urban communities. Previous work ranges from urban cultures in cities such as London, LA, or New York, looking at how technology, human population, and urban development affects us. He is also interested in how humans and animals coexist, and he has visited rural communities in Guatemala and Belize, as well as closer to home in the Scottish Highlands. Martin Eberlin, welcome to the Ben and Bikes podcast. Thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you very much. I do like to see if I can get as much research done before I start these podcasts as possible, and then dangerously and bravely uh, see if I can validate everything I just said with the person I wrote about. Um, I hope that's about right as far as you're concerned. Yeah, it sounds very, very accurate as Super. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, very good. Thank Super. you. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, I've, I've, I've asked that question a few times of late. And I've had to be corrected on a couple of items, but it looks like I got an A plus on that one. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so tell us. Uh, obviously, we've we've never met before, but uh, but who is Martin Eberlin? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, like you said, I, I'm a documentary photographer and photojournalist uh, living in London. Um, I've been a photographer since about 2000 and. 
nine, um, working, doing all sorts of different jobs, from commercial jobs to uh, weddings, to headshots and portraits for actors and writers and things like that. Um, and then about two years ago, I started to really focus on the things that I care about and to put my photography into um, to, to angle it in, in a much more focused direction, looking at the environmental issues and um, researching the subjects that I really care about. So I did a, a master's degree in documentary photography and photojournalism at uh, London College of Communication. Uh, and from there, I was really able to uh, choose my subject matter and really focus on the things I cared about, um, looking at environmental issues and uh, uh, waste and um, plastic pollution and climate change and how all those things are affecting us and will affect us in the future and how our actions of the past are going to affect us in the future as well. And so it's really been, um, I'm sort of really at the very beginning of my journey as a documentary photographer, but I'm feeling a lot more sort of focused and um, like I know what I'm doing, I guess, um, that my work has a lot more to say about it um, rather than just going out and, and making photographs. Yep. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's that's sort of who I am now. A lot of my work is centered around uh, research. So I'll spend a lot of time researching a subject before I even take a photograph. I sometimes think of myself as a photographer who takes very few photographs and feels more comfortable only taking one or two pictures than, I, than, than a photographer that maybe takes a hundred a day or, mm. or, or more. Yep. Um, uh, yeah. So last year I, I did the, the I started the project called uh, Our Land and Soil. Um, as you mentioned, it has this, the bracketed S to talk about the connection between the communities that I saw and their land and also the connection between the, the land and the oil companies who are exploiting it um, for financial gain. So um, last year was a really, really big project. It was a big year. Um, I did about four or five months of research before I headed out to the States so that I knew exactly where I was heading and um, uh, who I potentially might meet and so that I would understand as much as I possibly could about a really complex subject, which is oil, um, before I went out there. Um, yeah, so that's 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 what I'm doing now. That's what, I, that's what I'm focusing on now. I'm looking to get the book published and um, I'm putting it out there and uh, lots of different platforms, like you mentioned, the BBC um, and, and other places. And, and then also working as a photojournalist um, on other stories. Yep. So, yeah, so that's, that's me sort of in a nutshell. So uh, that that's fantastic. So just take a, take a step back then, but, you know, of all the choices that you could have uh, chosen to, uh, to base this big project on, and what on mm. earth made you decide to ride your bike almost 1,600 miles across four states from Stanley, North Dakota to Potoka, Illinois? Yeah, so I, I decided to do that mainly because I was quite interested in uh, Donald Trump's, um, the election of Donald Trump. Um, I followed it quite closely. And because I'm sort of heavily interested in environmental science, and climate change, um, I wanted to understand why he was so keen or so eager to sign 
um, so many uh, memorandi uh, within his first days of office. And I believe the pipeline uh, memorandum that he signed for the Dakota Access Pipeline was possibly one of the first or second that he signed um, when he was when he became president. I think it was on the 24th of January in 2017, and he was inaugurated um, only a few days before that. And so I felt like it was a, although although the protests for the pipeline and the the controversy surrounding the pipeline and its environmental impact was all within the media the year before and the summer before and, and, and you know, the, the year before that as well, the run up to that, to the, to the summer of 2016, um, I felt like it was still a very uh, a prominent issue, a very current issue and something that will continue to be an ongoing issue um, for, for many years to come. So although it wasn't necessarily front page news or, or centre page spread in a lot of newspapers now, I, I still felt like there was a lot of untold stories along the pipeline and a lot of damage, you know, there was still a lot of damage being caused by it, a lot of upset and there will be and has been people affected by it. Um, so I felt like it was really important to to, to get out there and, 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 and hear those stories and, and not come at it from um, one one angle, not, not not to come at it by, by by my personal opinion, saying you know we shouldn't be investing in fossil fuels, etc. But to to try and understand everybody's story, so from mm -hmm. from those men and women who work within the oil industry and who sacrifice um, many months and weeks away from their family in order to earn a better living, to those families who live along the route of the pipeline whose land has been taken and. Um, who have suffered, you know, horrendous stress and worry and an upset um, and financial uh, loss as well through the company taking their land, um, as well as other people like protesters and um, environmental lawyers and agronomists who study the, the soil and the state of the farmers' lands and things like that to try and get a really rounded picture. Um, I also wanted to visit a part of America that rarely gets talked about yes, other than um, nobody ever visits North Dakota. I, I read before I went that it's the least visited state by tourists, um, not just national, you know, not just American tourists, but international. No, nobody, nobody has a reason to go to North Dakota um, other than for the oil industry nowadays. And it used to be a really booming farming rural state. Um, and it, and it still is a really beautiful state. So um, I wanted to see a part of America that I perhaps would never have got the chance to see um, before as well. Um, the reason I cycled, I guess, is, is another question or another answer to that question, was because I wanted to have a direct contact with the people that I met. Quite often it's easy to visit different countries and have the protection of a, of a car windscreen um, to divide you from strangers. And if you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't have to because you're very safe within your car. But me being on a bike was um, immediately the barriers were down and I was able to talk to to people um, or they were felt much more comfortable talking and approaching me uh, because I was on a bike and I was essentially much more vulnerable. I also got to see the lay of the land um, at a much slower pace so I was able to notice more things, um, the depletion of the wildlife and it sounds sort of kind of arty and um, 
um, a bit romantic, but I was able to I was able to smell the air as I as I passed through it, and and actually that was quite an important part of the project. And um, I noticed the difference in North Dakota; it was quite stagnant and and hot and humid, and there was some rather foul smells coming up from the ground because uh, the um, the crude oil it's it doesn't doesn't smell particularly good huh. um and i would have missed all that well not missed it i, would, I wouldn't have noticed those things had i been in a car uh, with the aircon on and with the you know with the fresh air essentially so yes um, yeah that, that connection to the land was was important for me for the project and and the and the interesting thing which i i did see uh, amongst your photographs is is the very uh, american phenomena of roadkill um, mm-hmm. which um, for those of you who have never cycled across America, which which may be the vast majority of you, uh, you would be amazed at not only the number of, uh, of animals that are killed, but the diversity of animals that are killed on the side of the road. Uh, I've, yeah. I've certainly experienced it myself. Did you... Um, did you ever encounter what truckers referred to as truck bombs? Um, I don't know what they are, but I could take a wild guess. Um, it could be pheasants or birds flying across the road if they're driving. Is that? Uh, no, slightly worse than that. So a truck bomb yeah. is uh, a driver who's driving down the road with, uh, as you accurately define, a very tight timeline to keep uh, and doesn't want to stop uh, to pee. Uh, and so they will use um, like seven up bottles, uh, pee in that, and then throw that out the window. No, I mean, I probably, I did see a lot of trash along the way. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were filled with... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm quite sure with that's the case. But you, you uh, are you, were you a cyclist before you started this? Uh, fortunately, yes. I think okay. if I wasn't a cyclist, I really would have struggled. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On my second day, I did um, I did 116 miles. Ah. And that was, that was with about... I think I probably, because I had a lot of photography equipment, two cameras, laptop, extra batteries, and uh, stove, water, um, food. Um, I had very few clothes, but um, unfortunately the things that I did take with me were quite heavy. Um, if I hadn't have been a cyclist before I came out, so I definitely would have struggled on days where it was over 30 degrees. Right. Me coming from London, and you're, you're an Englishman, you know our weather is rarely at 30 degrees. Yes. So me me coming from from London and our summer, you know, which might be twenty twenty one degrees, and then coming over to North Dakota in the height of the summer and cycling for nine ten hours a day, thirty four degree heat, right. um, for a hundred miles, it, it 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 took its toll on me. I I did suffer, but um, fortunately, yes, I've been a cyclist for quite a few years. Um, but this was my first cycle tour. This mm-hmm. was my first time with the you know, full panniers and camping equipment um, and things. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah, like I say, you, you, you could, for your first ever cycle tour, uh, you could have chosen the Alps or Napa Valley. Uh, you decide to go. I, I could, and yeah. Bust. <laughs> I think that may, may be my second tour. In fact, I, I've got a friend who I met whilst I was out in America. I made friends with a lovely lady called Susan uh-huh. who lives in Ames in Iowa. And she put me up through uh, Warm Showers, which uh-huh. might be a, a, a website that many, many of your listeners 
are aware of. If they're not, it's it's a great forum for people who are cycling across the world uh, to meet likewise uh, like-minded people um, who will put you up for free, give you a warm shower, and hopefully a breakfast in the morning. And this lady, Susan, she put me up in Iowa for uh, in Ames in Iowa for three nights, uh-huh. and uh, we ended up going out for a bike ride on the third day before I left. And now she's coming over to France and cycling. Uh, for a couple of weeks in France, and I'm going to go out and meet her and do some just casual touring, cycling. Um, so that's that's quite nice. Yeah, not not photography based, and no 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 documentary photography agenda. Just uh, hopefully enjoy the scenery, and it might be a little nicer than the oil fields in North Dakota. But yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe the Alps. I'll do it. <laughs> very good. Uh, without getting too controversial here, is that a romantic relationship or is that just uh, a no, friendly relationship? <laughs> It's not a romantic relationship. Okay, I'm just checking. <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> no, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it did sound it the way I said it. It I'm did sure. a little, yeah. It's not a romantic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds like a romantic trip, though. But uh, <laughs> no, it's not. No. All right. Well, um, so she, she actually, she is a retired. Uh, quite a, just, just, a, just a big up Susan for a moment. She's actually a retired professor ah. um, from Iowa State University, and is. I don't want to say her. Her age, but for her age, she is inspirational. Um, I think the first the, the week I went to meet her was her. She was going out camping and on a week a week long uh, bike tour through South Dakota ah. or, or possibly Colorado. Actually, I think she was going over to Denver where, oh, cool. where you are. Yeah, that's right. And um, for a lady who's retired and is you know taking up her first camping trip, I think that's you know hats off because I know a lot of people who, who yep. especially in England, who retire and. Don't move from the sofa. <laughs> yeah, that that yeah. won't be that won't be me, and not or Susan from the sounds of things. Um, no. <laughs> you, you know what's interesting about these podcast conversations that I have is uh, one conversation often leads to another, and uh, warmshowers.com, uh, I'm going to reach out to you because I've just realised that would be a tremendous podcast conversation. So I am. Yeah, uh, definitely. Would. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna reach out for that. Um, so, so, so back to the, to the, oh, actually one more question on the, what, what bike did you, did you ride across? Uh, I, American? I rode on an American bike. Uh, it was a Jamis Aurora Elite yep. 2017 model. Um, it was uh, a very nice bike. It got me from the very start to the very end with absolutely no technical faults whatsoever. Okay. Um, I had one puncture on my second day and that was it. That's incredible. Um, it's quite incredible. I got very lucky. Very awesome. lucky there. Yeah, absolutely. You would expect a lot more to happen. You've actually yeah. uh, just completely negated one of the questions I was going to ask you, which is how, <laughs> how did you deal with your bike when it broke down? But it doesn't sound like mm-hmm. you needed to do that at all. No, uh, it didn't. No. Um, where did you did you get the bike from? Was it just? I, I did. I got it here in England, and I, I flew it over with me, and I flew it back again, and I now use it. Uh, for commuting, it's uh, good. It's a solid bike. Yeah, very good. Have you uh, have you named it? Have I named it? Yeah. No, I haven't. Perhaps I should think of a name. Yes, I'm. I get I get a lot of grief from my friends because I tend to name everything: bicycles, cars, um, um, all sorts of things. So uh, I just think it's rather cool to name a bike. Maybe just call it Janice. Yeah. I don't know. You, well, well, I, I should probably think of something from well, group, well from, 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 from its inaugural trip out across America, and um, I'll get back to you on that one. Uh, may, maybe uh, Susan would be a good one. I don't know. Well, yeah, Susan, Susan might be a good name. Yeah, good, good point. Good, good shout. Name, good name Although I bike. did meet, 
I have to be honest, it would be unfair to a lot of the other people, who, wonderful people who put me up, because uh, <laughs> I have some wonderful stories to tell about so many generous people. So I'm sure. Perhaps it could have a you know first name and then a many, many, many barrels. There you go. <laughs> right. So, so back to the to the to the pipeline discussion. You know, the the pipeline itself has obviously had a massive negative impact. People yeah. are also making a ton of cash on it in terms of the people that you met. Uh, you mentioned uh, a guy by the name of Breeze, for example. Yeah. Uh, photograph uh, is on your website. Again, go to benandbikes.com to see these awesome and amazing photographs. But I've got, I've got to tell you as a sidebar, I did actually think that might be a self-portrait of you because I couldn't find your photograph <laughs> of you anywhere. And then I saw his, his U.S. Navy tattoo on his left arm. I'm like, oh, God, there's no way that can, can be you. But anyway, but, but Breeze makes $130,000 a year. That's about 90 grand in, uh, in U.K. pounds per year working on the pipeline. Um, um, how how did this kind of you know like differential between people who were uh, taking advantage of the pipeline and people who were affected negatively by the pipeline? Um, how, how did that affect the conversations that you were having? Given the fact that that your mission in terms of doing this project was to draw attention to the environmental and human impact negatively. Um, how, how did that change things? Well, actually, actually, I, I think I think I set out by saying that I didn't necessarily want the project to uh, to do what you just said. I, I didn't want it to just say, "Look how bad this pipeline is." Right. Um, so, and I, and and actually, the full uh, extent of the book um, itself doesn't do that. It's it follows the pipeline and it tells the stories of the people who live alongside it, who also work alongside it through their own words. And it should be up to the reader then to decide whether or not the environmental impact is or, or the damage this pipeline causes is worth the investment and is worth it to uh, the lives of the people that live alongside it. Um, I, admittedly, I didn't meet a lot of people who were pro-pipeline that didn't work within the oil industry. Right. Um, although Breeze was an interesting character because he did talk to me very briefly about climate change, but he said that it's not something that if you work in the oil industry, you talk about. And I can understand his point of view um, as a man who comes from uh, Mississippi who had uh, very few working and job opportunities yep. um, for, for, for him to then be offered something that could be extremely lucrative to support his wife and his children back home um, it, it, it was essentially a lifeline and and I understand where he's coming from he he doesn't think about climate change he says it, it, it's not it's not for him it's not he's not he's he says personally he's not going to uh, be able to tackle it alone, which essentially is, is sort of not what I believe. You know, it, it takes one single person alone to start making a change, and mm -hmm. eventually, you know, enough people will, could catch on, and, and, and the change will happen. So, although he did he did talk about that, um, I do understand his position of of having a family and and, and needing work, um, and how attractive the offer must look if they are dangling quite large checks in front of you. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, it wasn't that I was setting out to try and say, I want to go to this pipeline because it's so bad. It, it, although personally, I feel like it was unnecessary and 
um, is unnecessary and should be closed down. The book itself, the project is not, it's not my, it's not my opinion. It's people's stories from along the pipeline. So yeah. uh, does that make sense? No, it, it makes total sense. But I'll tie that back to something that you started the conversation about in terms of your motivation around um, Donald Trump's election. Uh, which yeah. is he did a very he and his campaign did an extremely an extraordinary um, job at um, talking to people like Breeze um, yes. who feel in this country and and probably f- very rightly in terms of their perspective feel very disenfranchised with their lives in America, especially in the middle of the country. Um, the, the coast of the country, not not so much. But right in that middle, the, the places that you say that people don't visit, um, mm-hmm. they, those people do feel very disenfranchised. So uh, a politician who reaches out to them and talks to them directly, um, you know, uh, with a message of, of support and help uh, is, are precisely the people that got uh, Mr. Trump elected to the presidency um, uh, that, that, and you were talking to them. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did meet a lot of uh, Donald Trump supporters whilst I was out there. But um, my main agenda for the trip wasn't to do with politics. Um, I wasn't out to, although although Donald Trump's signing of the memorandum was part of what inspired me to start the project and uh, was part of what inspired me to to, to take that so, such a such a long journey by bicycle. Yeah, it. It wasn't a. It, it was never a political story for me. It was more a an investigative um, uh, journey to look at the people's lives along along the pipeline. I, I didn't get into any uh, into any political debates whilst I was out there. I don't know enough about American politics to to stand um, and and have a. a a valued opinion. Yes. Um, all I have is is what I can read and gain access to through various forms of media. So, uh, the only thing that I can I can now say is that I can sympathise with um, people in Middle America. I have been there. I have witnessed it. I have seen it. Um, but having seen both sides, it's it, it, it's it's very obvious how. Living in Middle America, you can feel very isolated and, and cut off. If, if we're not if we're not careful, this conversation will, will become you and I agreeing on very many points, all of which you just made. So uh, <laughs> be very careful there. Hey there, podcast listener. We'll be right back to the show, so please don't touch that dial. It's time you got a reward for sweating up that hill on your bike, and we're very excited to tell you about a company called Health IQ who kindly sponsor the Ben and Bikes podcast. Health IQ's customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. Bottom line, you invest in a healthy lifestyle, and that investment should mean that life insurance is cheaper. See if you qualify by visiting healthiq.com forward slash B-A-B, and take the health IQ test. And now, back to the podcast. Jumping back to the, to the, to the project, so looking through um, your 
um, your website. So uh, Martin has a, a website, uh, Martin Eberlen, E-B-E-R-L-E-N.com, uh, where you can see a lot of the work uh, that he has ha- has produced. Um, but, you know, as I'm looking through your, you know, our land and soil uh, montage on, on your website, uh, it's always hard to be able to convert what's on someone's website from a visual perspective to a podcast audience. Um, yeah. So, so why don't, if you would, uh, you know, just pick a couple of your sort of favorite stories uh, of of people that you met. Uh, maybe you know, one from uh, fr- from a, uh, a sort of a local resident perspective, and and one from a an oil worker perspective, and just and just talk around around that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we already spoke about Breeze and his connection to the project and why he. Or why, why I spoke to him, why I ended up speaking to him. He was actually, um, so maybe I should just finish off his story. He, he was actually um, coming to the end of, uh, I think, uh, an eight-week stint away from his family. Uh, five weeks. Sorry, it was five weeks. He, he, um, he was coming to the end of a five-week stint away from his family. And this is one of the sacrifices that he makes. He, he, he flies Mississippi up to North Dakota Um and he spends f- up to five weeks away from home working out every single day um, and can be sort of 16, 14 to 16 hour days, waking up in the early hours of the morning, sitting on a bus for an hour and a half, um, working a 12 hour uh, or a 10 hour shift and then getting home and sleeping in a hotel, um, having one room and feeling quite isolated and uh, uh, and spending his time chatting to his family on, on the phone in the what was essentially the car park of the uh, of the Roosevelt Inn huh. in Watford City. Uh-huh. Um, so not a highly glamorous lifestyle. Um, and like like I said, lots of sacrifices made um, and also the longevity of his job. Um, I, I didn't ask for his age, but um, it's not an industry that you work in for years and years and years. I think a veteran of the industry is probably somebody that's worked within in the in the oil industry for you know around 10 to 15 years doing what he does in terms of manual labor, the hard work that he does. Um, I know that he told me about a lady who was staying at the hotel who has been doing it for 10 years and that that's, um, especially in North Dakota, that's uh, quite rare. Um, A lot of people make as much money as they can and, you know, once they've got one or two million dollars in their account, they'll say thank you very much and leave. Um, he, He told me about a man who just the week before I arrived left all of his stuff uh, one day and just just quit. That was it. He'd had enough, huh. um, and he'd only done two years. Um, I don't know whether it was a financial decision or or whether it was a um, it just purely physical tiredness that left him to leave. But um, it, these these sacrifices that they make are, are are quite big, and also it's an incredibly dangerous job. They're working with high pressure gases. Um, very heavy, heavy machinery, uh, long hours, so they become tired, and one tiny little mistake can can lead to a fatality. So yeah, they are putting their life on the line for for a, for a good wage to support their family. So there's that aspect. Um, if we were talking about an industry that wasn't affecting the environment, I I think I would you know I wouldn't I wouldn't question it. I don't personally think I could do that, no matter how much money you would pay me. 
for me, I wouldn't be able to work in an industry that I knew that was um, so directly damaging um, for the land and for the the, 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 the long term effects on the planet. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. Um, but 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 yes, yeah, so that's that's Breeze's story. I'm another lady in in oil country. Uh, in North Dakota was a lady called Ruth, who um, she she spoke to me at the campsite. She was a campsite host. She volunteers in North Dakota for, um, I think, two weeks at a time at four different campsites. Um, and I was in my tent one night, uh, tired, ready to go to sleep. And she came over and said hello. And my initial instinct was to say, no, I, I can't talk to you. I, mean, I didn't say that out loud, but <laughs> I, I was sort of trying to shut down the conversation so that I could go to sleep. But... Uh, ten minutes later, I was up, dressed, and sitting in the passenger seat of her car, and we were driving around the local roads, having a look at the flares burning through the night, and I was getting some photography that I wouldn't have got otherwise. Uh, the evening sunsets and the flares lighting up the, the, the landscape across the sort of badlands of North Dakota. Um, and she told me about how she feels uh, the oil industry is ruining the environment and that she's grown up in North Dakota all her life. She lives in Minot and she's gradually seen a decline in wildlife. Um, she said quite a, a thing that her, hit me quite hard and has stayed with me, which is uh, she doesn't wake up in the morning and hear birdsong and she knows that when you don't hear birdsong anymore, something is definitely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be, I mean, there's not a lot of trees in North Dakota, but there certainly used to be birds. Um, so, so that's that's just uh, one small observation, but it's been noticed by a, a local lady who who has no financial gain or interest in the oil industry at all. Um, so that was her story. Um, later, a lot later along the pipeline in countries like uh, Iowa, I met farmers who uh, I met a, a couple, uh, Gary and Linda. They live in a place called Jolly in in Iowa. Um, fortunately, I bumped into their neighbour who pointed me in the direction of uh, who owned a specific patch of land that I was trying to photograph. I knocked on their door and um, because essentially they've never had their story told, they were very keen to to tell me how they'd been affected. Um, and just through simply knocking on somebody's door, which I, I don't know whether anybody does these days, but um, I, I put my faith in anyone I met, I was quite trusting and open and uh, hoped that I wouldn't get into any kind of trouble. Um, uh, They invited me in and uh, I was with them for about two and a half, maybe three hours, um, talking, making notes, seeing all of their paperwork, seeing all of the stress and worries that they've been through on their land. Um, And then later later on, we took a, a ride in their car to a patch of land that has been damaged for several years now and has never fully recovered. Um, they've also never had any financial compensation for the land that they've lost um, and for the crops that they've lost over the years either. So they they not had a good experience with the pipeline and they completely uh, objected the idea, um, rejected, sorry, the idea uh, that the pipeline should go through their land from day one and never no matter how much money was offered to them did they say yes and and that's quite admirable as well you know yep. from their stance i can understand having a farm and having land in your family for a hundred years and it being passed down you feeling responsible for that land 
um, and to look after it and hopefully pass it on again to the next generation and then to have it threatened um, like that by a, a company who is essentially just wanting to make money is um, is is really quite upsetting. Um, if, if it was, a, for example, a utility company that might benefit the rural community, high-speed internet or or a fresh water pipeline, then perhaps they would have you know they wouldn't have thought twice about it. But because it was it was a it was a private company looking for financial gain, um, it they they were they were dead against it. And again, I can understand where they're coming from. I do so, I do have uh, two two quick stories that I would love to to hear about. Uh, yeah. The first one is uh, hats off to you for saving that dog, uh, yeah. uh, whatever its name was. Um, it seemed like uh, just it's on your website, just known as rescued dog. So, yeah. so what happened so there? That story was um, that was I think I was about to arrive in Sioux Falls. Oh yes, yeah. and that was the halfway point for my journey. Right, and I was so desperate to get there because I knew that it was a big town. Yeah, and I would be able to stay in a hotel for three nights and recharge not only my camera batteries but my <laughs> my own batteries. <laughs> and um, probably about an hour from getting to Sioux Falls, I noticed the dog bounding through this cornfield, and I thought, oh, that's quite sweet he must you know he must be really trusting around here the owners let their dogs run for so, such long long distances and then two miles later he was he was still there and then three miles later he was right by my side wow and just jumping along with me and i thought something's not right here i think he's followed me and he's a bit lost so i stopped and uh, he sat at my feet um and I've got two dogs at home. I don't know if you can probably hear them barking in the background now. I just heard why, um, yeah. I was going to ask yeah. if you brought it home. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I probably would have done if I'd have been in a car. And I, would, <laughs> and I couldn't find its owner. I would have taken it uh, to the nearest bound or something and tried to find a home for it. Right. And if, nobody, if nobody takes him, I'll have him. Right. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I ended up cycling back, backtracking another three miles. I met a guy who was installing some uh, telephone cabling and he put the dog in the back of the car so that it was safe. And we sort of cycled back along and he drove behind me back up the road until I could remember where he, where this dog first sort of appeared from. And we went up a farm tr track and we found this lead and the dog went straight into the house as soon as we got there he let them out of the car went straight in the house and we thought this is where he lives uh, we couldn't find the owner but we found the lead attached to the truck so we filled him up a bowl of water right and uh he seemed pretty chilled out and then i took his portrait that's yeah, good it's <laughs> had, had to be done. don't take this the the wrong way uh martin but it's actually i know you went out there to take a picture of landscapes and people but it's one of my favorite photographs <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what i i'm quite happy you say that i mean any photograph that has a dog in it is probably going to end up being my favorite photograph too. right right <laughs> And then, and then the second story, um, which I didn't quite understand from the description uh, yeah. on the website, is is a man carrying a, an automatic rifle uh, in his hand okay. with a with a ski mask on. So, what is going yeah. on there? <laughs> yeah. So I, this was on my very first day out with photographing in Stanley, in North Dakota, uh -huh. and um, I'd met a handful of people that day. Another lady called Susan, who very kindly drove me around town in a golf buggy. Uh -huh. um, I went into a nice cafe opposite this place and they gave me a free peanut butter and peanut butter and jelly sandwich and um, 
and they'd closed as well. I think I charmed them with my English accent. So, there you go. Oh, I'm very hungry. Can I can I have some peanut butter and jelly sandwich, please? Um, uh, and then I walked out of the shop and around the corner and was going to the Dakota Drug Store, which is where these guys are photographed outside of because in Minot, a man had told me that when I get to Stanley, I have to go and try the Whirler Whip, which is soft serve ice cream mixed together with all sorts of ingredients of your own choice. So Oreo mm. cookies or vanilla or fresh fruit or chocolate. Um, and it's the only working Whirler Whip machine in the whole of the States. Of so lots is. of people yeah. go there for, for, for this. Yeah. So I thought, well, I've got to try that. So I headed to the to go to drug and I, I walked around the corner and there was a guy in a balaclava with what looks like some sort of, I don't know, M16 semi-automatic rifle. And there's another guy sitting in a car with what looks like an Uzi and they are very realistic looking guns. And my first instinct was to take a picture. So I did. <laughs> um, it wasn't a very good picture. Um, and then I, I, I realized I, I realized very quickly that they were filming something. But my my first instinct was, geez, there's men with guns. Take a picture and then either run away or or, or find out what's going on. But I, I quickly deciphered that they were they were filming something. Um, but what was surprising to me was that um, with the sort of heightened tensions in America and across the world, really was. Um, gun laws and the very sad events that have been happening in various high schools across right. America, that these guys could walk quite freely along this high street with very realistic looking semi-automatic rifles. And the portrait that I took, the photograph that I took, summed that up for me. That sort of thing wouldn't happen in the centre of London or in a small village in, in, in England somewhere. You, you wouldn't be able to walk around with such realistic guns and Absolutely. we don't have as many uh, guns in this country as as you have in America so it was it was quite shocking um, for me what were they actually making i think it was an independent i think there were a group of actors and filmmakers who were making their own movie one, oh, of, yeah. them, one of the guys i think they were from minneapolis which is a quite a few hours drive away right but um one of the guys had grown up in this town and had said oh we can go back to my hometown it'll be quiet nobody will bother us we can make a movie there and we can run around with guns and nobody will ask any questions it'll be fine that's as that's as much an observation of your trip uh, as it is an observation on american gun culture right there yeah um yeah. And, and that's if, sort of what i thought yeah, yeah <laughs> if, if things don't work out for you uh in the environmental world uh maybe Kabul would be uh, another good step because your instant reaction to take a photograph of a man holding an m16 uh <laughs> rather than run I, in the opposite direction is probably a good characteristic of a war photographer i would imagine i should probably put that picture in the in the book just to show how bad a picture it is so um yeah. so you've you've got one this this one in the bag and uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll plug the fact that I co I, I think I'm right in saying uh, that you are still looking for a publisher uh, for your book. Uh, um, I am, yeah. I've I've got it in a couple of competitions, so um, yeah. we'll, we'll see the outcome of those competitions. It's uh, yeah. it is. I do see it very much as a work in progress. The book it's it's 160 pages with around 160 images at the moment, um, 
uh, it's quite dense. It's it's got a lot of information in it. But um, yeah, I am looking for a publisher. Yep. Uh, there's lots and lots of individual stories and strands to tell. Yep. So um, um, but, um, info at com, or you can reach out to Ben and Bikes and we'll connect you if you are interested. How did you end up on the BBC's website? Because that doesn't suck in terms of your exposure. No, it doesn't. It was a um, very, very kind uh, offer from the picture editor at the BBC. So uh, this project was at our land of soils exhibited as part of my master's degree back in uh, November last year. And there was a handful of us who were sort of highlighted by the picture editor um, as sort of commended projects, uh, ones that he thought were particularly successful. And he made a comment that it would make a very good piece for the BBC website. So yeah. I, I followed that up with an email and um, lo and behold, the following week I was in the BBC offices and um, chatting about um, sort of commissions and and um, potentially creating a piece for the website. So yeah, I, I owe it to Phil Coombs at BBC who who gave me that exposure. But um, uh, yeah, I now I am now working on another story for the BBC, and hopefully I will uh, continue to do so in the future with other other pictures and other ideas. Yeah. So so talking of of the next next project, what's what's the next big one for you? What are you what are you researching about right now? Well, I have a couple of different projects. Um, they're, they're certainly sort of in the research process at the moment. Um, one of them is another project over in America um, and uh, in Canada. It's about uh, a, a, a department of the, uh, uh, the the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, um, who they're called the International Ice Patrol. And what they do is they fly for certain months of the year, tracking large icebergs that break off from the Arctic um, and drift into uh, various waters in and around Canada and within the, the Arctic Circle. And they they mark them out and they send out various information across the world to shipping lanes and shipping companies mm. who might be... Um, uh, who might they might think could come into contact with an iceberg, and it all started uh, their their strand of the or their um, their section of the U.S. Coast Guard was established just after the Titanic sank. All right. Um, so it's an interesting story, very sort of historic story, very um, uh, commendable job, um, and a very important job, certainly to do with climate change. I, yeah. I'm sort of looking at how. Their uh, how their job has changed. Whether it's whether they're tracking more icebergs now due to rising sea levels and warming sea temperatures, etc., or whether they've just noticed a sort of steady, uh, a steady amount of numbers and steady sort of facts and figures. Sorry, um, over, over the last sort of 20, 25 years. This has been um, a fascinating uh, conversation. Um, if you ever find yourself uh, looking for a, a warm shower and a bed to sleep in. If you're in Colorado next time, uh, please give me a shout. Uh, you'd be more than welcome. Thank you. Um, but um, thank you very much for, for your, uh, your discussion about your book. Again, uh, Martin is looking for a publisher. So if you're interested, give him or myself at benandbikes.com a shout and, uh, and I'll connect you to Martin. But uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, I know it's getting a bit late uh, over there in the UK and um, I look forward to, to staying in touch. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, good. 
We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Ben and Bikes podcast. You'll find this and many other episodes about athletes, authors, filmmakers, and community organizers, all with a story to tell about bikes by visiting benandbikes.com. Thank you for listening. We'd sure appreciate it if you could rate and review the Ben and Bikes podcast wherever you listen. We appreciate your support, and thanks for helping us connect with other bike enthusiasts. If you have a bike story to tell, email us, ben at benandbikes.com.